Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Sean Uzmar, founder of Triple Flag Precious Metals. They're a royalty and streaming company deploying capital to select investments in the mining industry. Now, just saying that might not sound overly exciting in his interview, but I assure you, this is an episode you'll want to listen to. Sean, as a leader, has the kind of pedigree that major investors like to bet on. He has C-suite experience with majors where he's seen the good times, but more importantly, he's seen the tough times and is applying those lessons to building Triple Flag today. He's been in the trenches during the hard times and made very hard decisions, but he also conveys a lot of heart and passion for building Triple Flag. As an example, after we stopped recording, he shared with me why he named the company Triple Flag. It represents the three different countries his children were born in while he's been building his career. Now, what does that tell you about commitment to building meaningful businesses? And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company. I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Corey. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think that you've built a remarkable business. I think that you've had a very interesting career in the mining and mineral space. I think the best place to start, though, is with an introduction from you about that history. So what do you say? I'll pass it over to you. Hey, look, thanks. Yeah, I guess yes. we started this business over six years ago. You know, time flies and we started from scratch. But I think a lot of things in my career and the partnerships and the people obviously lead to these opportunities. And I started in operations in South Africa. And I guess after an MBA in the US figured I was going back to ops and ended up in Burlington in London that you know, had just transitioned to the, the London Stock Exchange, was like really acquisitive. And I love the sector. I mean, there's so many cool things. Like we were doing projects in China before China had really sort of captured everyone's consciousness on the mining space, you know, places like Kunming and in the foothills of the Himalayas, you know, deals in Colombia and South Africa, all over the place. And worked on the Beatrice Billiton merger and the combination, which was a great experience. And then when Mick Davis started Extrada, was one of the early executives to join him, a company that I think at the time was half a billion and over 10 years, you know, that grew to 60 billion. And it was just an incredible journey. It took me to different places, different roles at a time when I think the Chinese, the whole super cycle thing wasn't on anyone's consciousness, but obviously that was a really big factor at a time that the world needed these minerals. And really informed by way of contrast, having worked in places like BHP Billiton and then, you know, in a small organization from a corporate point of view, something that was just high powered, agile, low overhead, empowering people on the ground is just a model I subscribe to. 
And then, you know, I took on the Barrick CFO role when gold was heading to probably the lowest in more than a decade. I think my restructuring skills in, in, in Extrada really were the things that I felt I could contribute there as CFO. And when I joined, it had 13 billion of debt and change. It had lost money for three or four years, was on track to lose another billion and really working with the guys on the ground as well as in the corporate office. You know, we got it back to making cash and profitable and really turned the business around when gold dropped to like 1050, for example. And it was around that time, you know, I'd, I'd encountered Elliot. They were captured by the business model of the royalty and streaming space and really felt it was probably the best way to invest in precious metals. And it's pretty clear that, you know, they're, you know, a four decade plus highly successful fund, but they really like precious metals as part of that exposure. And they admired what Frank and Nevada had built. And the founding idea from their side was, you know, can you build a Frank and Nevada without the oil and gas? And replicate that journey at a good stage from scratch. And for me, it was the chance to try and recreate an early extrata, build a team from scratch with a great long-term capital partner. And at the same time, I'd worked in diversified precious metals, and I could see how that business model really could be quite enabling. The mining sector needs patient, smart capital. And very often, these equity windows, for example, are super limited. Generalists, I think, you know, there sometimes, but often not. And it really felt like a great opportunity. So yeah, fast forward six odd years and we've seen over 600 deals. We've got a beautiful team of people, 13 of us in two offices, two locations. I guess now we've done 17 transactions, 80 assets. We've grown ounces since 2017 by 26% year on year cumulative annual growth rate. And yeah, we're, you know, I guess now nearly $2 billion business in the current markets. And it's been a great journey and yeah, I've really the privilege to have been a part of it. Just having your intro here, a bit of research before our call and our pre-call, just when we jumped on here, I'm just, I have so many questions. <laughs> so there's lots of areas I want to go. One with Triple Flag, you've given us a bit of the background, but take us deeper into making the decision to start it yourself. You founded this company. It's now a $2 billion market cap organization. And in a really interesting space, but I don't want to say there's been sleepless nights for you, but I'm sure there was a lot of consideration before saying, I'm going to do this. What was that like? Yeah. Look, I think anything where you take that leap, I think people often, it's hard to take that big change in a career, particularly, you know, when you've established yourself and, you know, you've enjoyed some success in a role and you're sort of moving forward. But I've often looked at choices in my career through the lens of, I don't want to look back on life through a lens of regret and say, I wish I tried. I'd rather try and fail than not try. And when I was first sort of approached by Elliot, one, I didn't know them and I was super busy at the time and we just started generating cash in the business, turning it around and we'd reset things in, in Barrick. But my curiosity got the better of me. So, I, you know, I spent, I took a day's leave. It was the day after my birthday, flew to New York, spent four hours with these guys and I had preconceived ideas, but I walked away like just really impressed with how just cerebral, thoughtful and, and impressive the people were that I'd, I'd seen there. And I did my homework at the end of the day, but it was informed by both having been in the mining space. I think I first saw the royalty model actually when, or the streaming model in particular, when Ian Telfer had flown over to London when we were, we just bought Miners and Mines back in 2003, I'm going to say. And Alan Brera, which I know Lucas Lundin had spoken about on one of your previous podcasts, they'd, we had half of that business and it's a copper deposit, but it had gold byproducts and they wanted to stream gold. And it was the first time that the arbitrage was 
on display. You know, you look at the EV EBITDA multiples of businesses like ours, they trade at significantly higher multiples in the teens or higher than say like a BHP that is trading very well now at say five or nearly six times EV EBITDA. And no one cares about the precious metals in those businesses. But you know that a gold mine a barrack or a new month or pick your name, you know, it'll be 10, 11, 12 years of reserves. And you've always got to keep on exploring, putting the capital back in. Whereas particularly these large polymetallic copper mines tend to have decades of mine life ahead of them. And if you've got a byproduct, it's just, it's a natural, beautiful arbitrage. So the idea was there. I, I felt, I believe in the copper transition and the energy transition piece, having spent most of the time in the diversified side. I did my homework on Elliot and I could see that, you know, they were the real deal. They'd been in it, in it for, I think in 40 years, they'd had two single digit down years, including the financial crisis. They generated at that time about a 13 and a half percent, you know, annual return and with a third of the volatility of the S&P and just very, very impressive. So the idea that we were looking to commit about a billion over, you know, five years to see if we could actually build a non-oil and gas focused precious metals business like a Franco without that component was the idea. And it seemed too good an opportunity to pass up. So. Wow. And it's definitely proven itself. So yeah, we get a lot of skeptics. I mean, people now say, well, you know, it's a busy space, but when I started, everyone's going, well, you know, there's these really impressive big guys and we chose to compete directly with them given the balance sheet that and the know-how we knew we, we had versus on the small end with the barriers to entry or lower. And it's always easy with hindsight, but at the time, everyone's going, oh, no, okay, this is very difficult and there's not a lot to do here, whereas we believe that there was. The mention of hindsight brings me to a question about lessons learned. And, you know, oftentimes mistakes made are effectively the most profitable opportunities come from the learnings that, you know, out of that kind of thing. What have been some of the most informative mistakes you've made, whether previous career or even in building triple flat? Yeah, look, I think very often you learn more from the things either you don't do or that you nearly did as much as the things that you did. And it's always important to sort of go back. And we do that quite reflexively. When I look back and the mistakes on, say, big projects of the time and the cycle and different things like that, that tends to happen. I mean, by its nature, this is a very capital intensive sector. It doesn't matter how sensible your capital structure seems at a point in time. You know, you've got good target gearing levels, for example. If commodity prices drop like they did in the financial crisis, and we'd bought Falconbridge in a pretty hostile you know, experience that brought me to Canada back in 2006 is when I came back. And sorry, this was with, was it BHP? Extrada. Okay. Yeah. So back then, nickel in the first year it went up to nearly $25 a pound, you know, which was incredible. The minute Lehman's collapsed and the financial crisis was in full swing, I think we went through six budgeting rounds. We were, nickel was already at 1050. And around that time, you know, we had a $14 billion capital pipeline that the management team was coalescing around, which was unsustainable. And that's just in the nickel business. And I remember saying to our executives, I don't know how low it's going to go. But in price cycles, we could see how far it had dropped. And I said, look, I want to see what your business decisions will be if we get to $4. And as it turns out, it got pretty close there at the time. And it meant that closing operations, doing a lot of you know, pretty difficult things to get the business set up for the next cycle. But I think the lessons on that early on were just you know, at a time when if the macro backdrop is what it is, gearing is not your friend in a business like this. I actually think in most cases, not having a lot of debt, if any debt, on this and liquidity is really the key. And I saw that again in, you know, in Barrick when we're restructuring. I think the big thing there, other than 
self-help, resetting the cost structure, resetting the mind plan, selling non-core assets is really, you can't do that if you don't have liquidity. And, you know, we've got of our 15 producing assets now, two underperformers in this environment. And the struggle is like, really, it's more liquidity when you start in- incurring things like inflation that we are incurring now, supply chain disruptions. You look at some of the biggest, most impressive producers in this space. You've seen from tech to others say, we're delaying projects 12 to 18 months, and it's going to be 15 to 25% more. We've seen QB2, 60%. You know, we've seen pretty much every issue in Q2 really point to some difficulties with their cost structure with inflation. And if you are a big company and you have the balance sheet, you've got the liquidity, that's okay. But if these smaller businesses who don't necessarily have access to capital markets when they need them, I think having a prudent structure is, is key. So I think that's one. And the other one is just the sector is we always work on expected cash flows, discounted cash flow models. We don't spend enough time focusing on what can go wrong and understanding the risk components and what are the actions you can meaningfully take. Because projects were in full execution and we were involved in one in New Caledonia many years ago when it was 70% executed, the procurement was done, you know, all the big equipment was at site, you know, it all seemed on track. And then shortly after that, there was significant overruns and it was all productivity related, coincided with some, you know, downturns in the market. You can't switch these things on and off. And I think unless you have not just the right talent, but, you know, certainly the right funding, it really can bet the farm. So for us, that's meant, I think, out of more than 600 opportunities, you know, 17, 18 investments. And most times we don't, I'd say every time, we've not underwritten the same views as would appear in a 43-101 because I think even before inflation, the numbers were roughly one in five projects would be on time and on budget. And some of them would be spectacularly over. So you really have to factor that into your investment case. And that's experience and I think a bit of judgment with a good team. Yeah, it's such a fascinating industry, the mining space. And, you know, I joke around that I did my best to stay out of the mining sector, serving mining companies in my work, because I just thought it was boring and how naive I was. The doors were open to it and I was, I was ushered into it. I was like, this is a fascinating industry that there are so many variables. There are so many things that can go right and wrong. And the potential of profitability is, it can be so slim. It can be like winning the lottery at times. And it just, it's amazing. So very interesting. You're probably a poster child then for, I think, one of the challenges facing the sector. And that is, it it is a sector that makes such a a fundamental contribution to the global economy. You know, if you're not growing it or whatever, you're essentially mining it very often. And what it can mean for frontier communities, for governments, for tax takes, when done well, it is not understood. And also for, I think, a new generation seeking purpose in their careers, it can really make a huge difference. And we've got to do a better job of being able to attract you know, that talent. Yeah, I think that's a true statement. The talent to come into the industry is, I can imagine, there's not a huge pool, right? And the industry definitely needs it. But I also think that there's a whole group of young professionals that are missing a hell of an opportunity. So I'm curious about the conversations and the methodologies that you use with your team in analyzing these opportunities, and especially the conversations that have recently occurred when things like inflation and delays and overruns are happening. seems that things are happening at a pace that we weren't used to five years ago. How do you manage those with your team and with your investments? Okay, I think the first thing, the team is set up and deliberately so modeled more along 
Mike Strader experience where when you've got large organizations where you're essentially trying to cover every discipline and eventuality, I think it does mean that you've got a lot more resource and energy tied up in internal facing activities, which don't necessarily create value. And we're all significant shareholders in this business. And for us, what that means, having witnessed both models, is a team where you're covering off the key disciplines with really high quality people, stuff that's repeated. And then on the areas where you really have either a specialization, geotechnical, certain ESG activities, you know, dry stack tailings, I'm not keeping people on staff for that. So I want to make sure that we have through our networks, the ability to surgically source the right capability because we're ultimately in the business of making the best judgments possible in the face of uncertainty. To your point, things are accelerating and we need to be able to understand that the world is not a single future and that when we look at these investments, that we're not overburdening them, that we understand the risks. And usually, I think it's about 17, like 13 of our deals have actually been bilateral. We're working with miners. You can't have a winner and a loser. So we spend a lot of time working with them to be able to share our perspectives, understanding that very often they're informed through judgment and we may just disagree or agree to disagree. So to your point, that means firstly, the team is appropriately set up. Everyone has a voice and that there are at times pretty heated and contrarian discussions by design because it makes us better. And we will have those discussions with these management teams. And if we decide to invest, we've sort of gone through it and we've worked through it and we've really had the opportunity to sort of share perspectives and stress test these things. We've seen it even recently in these inflationary times on new builds and projects. We're in a, a situation at a mine site on a weekend with management team at 6.30 in the morning and our guys had a fundamental difference. And to the credit to that management team, we sat down, we were very transparent, we tend to be that way. And they, you know, you could see they were taking it on board and they incorporated a lot of that into it. So I think to, in this environment, there's heightened risks. I think you have to, in the early indicators, understand what that could mean for each of these situations. And then I think at the end of the day, if you make that decision, it's how do you work with your, you know, your mining partner essentially to help them be successful to the extent you can. That's how we think about it, I guess. Yeah. Something I take from there is that open, just having the open discourse enabling and perhaps even encouraging constructive conflict. Absolutely. I've had experience in my career where well, hierarchical organizations sometimes, it's like the teams are conspiring to tell the emperor that they have clothes, right? It's, I would far rather have a situation where you know everyone is empowered and even the most introverted members of the team have a voice. You want to be able to extract those perspectives and give them that opportunity because once we've all made the decision, we're all rowing in the same direction and, you know, we're creating wealth together. It's important that everyone has an opportunity to contribute. Yeah. You know, we should have perhaps touched on this earlier, but I want to talk about the streaming and royalty model. Can you give us just a high level version of it so then we can dive in on elements of it? But the business you're in at the highest level, can you explain that to us? I'll do that by contrasting it maybe as well with just mining. So you think about it. Geologist goes out there, resilient people, they drill a number of holes, you know, ultimately they'll prove up a reserve and a resource and hopefully the thing gets permitted and they'll build a project and hopefully there's not big overruns and you've got a mine at the end of that experience. That is increasingly rare and it's becoming harder. And by that, I mean less than half of the deposits. I think there's a group out of Australia who did a study going back to the 50s. And I think for copper, for example, less than half the discoveries became mines. And when you look at the trends, it's it's going down, not up. 
And then in addition, the time is nearly 20 years from discovery to actually for those who get built to get built. So there's a lot of capital intensity. There's a lot of time. There's significant risk associated with permitting. And then once you've built it, you know, there are these large fixed costs associated with the equipment, with the ongoing activities, with labor and ongoing exploration, because you want to continue to extend the mine life of those businesses. And most mines tend to have a good track record of doing that because it's economically rational to do it. And then at the end of it, though, ultimately, you've got to close it and there's closure liabilities and costs associated with that. And they can be substantial. And that's part of the reason very often miners will extend the life because you want to defer those liabilities. Okay. Yeah. Capital intensive and even the best very often cash margins at times like this, like a, let's say a new month or so, you know, maybe 20%. When you then, and a sector that very often has had not a, a great track record of shareholder value creation through those cycles because of the long-term nature. You look at Franco Nevada as an example, you look at a well-executed, more senior streaming and royalty business. Once you've made the investment, you can share this with the miner from a patient capital provider, low cost of capital perspective, but you're ultimately providing an upfront payment in return for some percentage usually of the metal entitlement out of that mine for usually the life of that mine. So a good example, a copper mine like North Parks that we've invested in, it's been going for 28 years there's a good chance it could go for a hundred. And the reality is a gold byproduct in a copper mine, which a copper mine doesn't really want. And you don't tend to get these multi-decade gold mines up front. So they get a good cost of capital. We've provided a $550 million upfront payment. There's an ongoing payment, which is a discounted amount for every ounce that's delivered. That can be a dollar an ounce number or a percent. And in our case, our cash margin is 90%. So you can see that that ongoing payment is not large and that allows you to write a bigger upfront check. But what it means for the streaming point of view is you lay out your capital. You've got to do your homework well, right? Because if it's not a good mine, it's not going to recoup your investment. But then you get metal deliveries as the mine produces. You get a proportion of that. If costs go up, that's okay. You don't get exposed to that. So like in these times, these inflationary times, cost of capital goes up, it doesn't affect your margins. That's one of the key benefits of this model. If they explore and they find- and For the miner, the point that would be for the miner, the cost of capital doesn't go up or the margins don't get affected. No, no, for the streamer. So by that or the, or the royalty business, because at the end of the day, you're receiving, let's say an ounce of gold, you've paid for this upfront deposit. And let's say my ongoing amount that I'm paying is 5% of the metal price. I will pay that 5% of the metal price, whether the costs have gone up in the business or they've indeed gone down. So it, it tends to be very good in inflationary environments and those margins tend to be very protective. It's a key benefit of that. And then, as I said earlier, when the miner tends to extend mine life, replace reserves or expand production, you will participate in that by virtue of your initial investment. So the patience with this business model tends to get rewarded and rewards the investor. And at the end of the day, you don't have the closure liabilities as well. So there are not only are you getting the price exposure that you get directly to exposure to the commodity, but you tend to participate in any improvements in volume through extension through expansions and you don't incur the liability. So there's some very attractive features compared to ETFs, owning bullion, or indeed um, the equities of miners. It's a very good business model. Yeah, we're now seeing it moved over into other industries. And for example, Carbon Streaming Corp is a business in the carbon space. 
and applying that model to the commodities or to the commodity of carbon. It's fascinating to see it be reapplied. I'm curious when it comes to the investor relations work you do and communicating. I mean, retail and institutional are different, and you're definitely playing in a ballpark of much more institutional money there. And you mentioned patient capital a number of times. Can you expand on that and the conversations there and how you build the relationships with the different institutions that you want to buy and hold you? And how you ultimately sell them your company to be a long-term investor? That's a great question. I think the first one is, look, there's no such thing as a monolithic investor, obviously. So we've got groups like Elliott as our largest shareholder that like the commodity, like the business model, and really have backed this team to invest. And they are long-term patient investors, single source of capital, no sunset on their fund. So that's a great match, right? Then... Obviously, there's retail investors that we don't have a large retail following. We've been listed just over a year, but we're looking to access that. And then very often those are things around inflation hedges. You know, they like precious metals. They understand the relative benefits of getting top line exposure rather than, you know, essentially profits and participating in the profits going on, which you do more in sort of a typical mining equity type of situation. And then with the institutional investors, you know, I think this sector very often does have a greater chance of attracting generalist investors. I think there's far more opportunity for generalist investors to come in. And those guys usually want the exposure as part of their portfolio, but they don't want to get into the minutiae of recoveries and they don't yeah, care. Right. Cases there, actually, it's the opposite. They just don't like it. Like They don't care. They just want to know that you've demonstrated growth, that there's a good team. That hopefully, they appreciate the track record and they want to understand the trajectory Usually, you know, the dividend is somewhat meaningful and you'll see, you know, that's been an important thing that we've set in place and we want to grow that. And we've just you recently guys just doubled that recently. No, I not quite double, but we've increased it 5%. But what we want to do is demonstrate one, we want to keep on paying. I think we've got the largest dividend yield in the sector, but we want to keep growing that over time. And we think the best guys in the sector have done that. I and mean, that's the thing we want to do because they generate large amounts of cash, these models. You want to give it back to the shareholders while you continue to reinvest in the business. And so that's the rationale. But the dividend, I think, is important to a number. And then you've got gold specialists. And I think there's quite a lot of those institutionally that we've got in the portfolio. We have a journey to travel as we grow liquidity to convert more investors and to bring them on that journey. But I think a lot of our current institutional investors are more gold specialists as well, that you know they know the peer set. They're very often invested in them. They're looking at it on an absolute as well as a relative basis, and they have a mandate to invest in precious metals. So there's a bit of a mix. Yeah, the whole world of investor relations in itself is fascinating, and especially when you're working with the nuances of your institutional investors. And you know those who are specialists, they need to allocate capital from their portfolio, and there's certain things that they weigh in. One of them, and this is really what I, I just find fascinating about you, is the pedigree that you yourself come from, and I'm sure you've brought in with the rest of your team. I mean, some huge experience. I'm jumping all over here, but I hope you're okay with that. What I, I want to talk about to your CFO experience, and pardon me, that was with Barrick or BHP? Yeah, no, at Barrick and then at Extrata, I, I was CFO of the Nickel Division, then prior to that, of the, of the Alloys Division, and then prior to that, Corporate Finance and M&A. So, yeah. Here's why I want to touch on it because in the restructuring work you do, you don't restructure in great times, right? Where things are good, you just clip the coupon and on your way. 
Whereas within bad times, there's hard decisions to be made and you have to do some deep analysis. And I want to hear more about that. I want to hear more about deals in which or situations in which you really had to make tough decisions. What comes to mind? There's so many. And it's an area, as you say, that is difficult, but it really does create the opportunity, I think, for a business to more sensibly allocate capital and resources on a go forward. So as hard as it is in the moment, it creates the foundation for that business for the future. And I liken it in some ways to a life raft. At the end of the day, you're trying to accommodate hundreds of people on a raft designed for 20. Everyone's going down. So even though those decisions are hard at the time, particularly when commodity prices are low, there's maybe too much debt in the business. You have to, as an active leadership, you have to make those choices and you need to do it analytically and dispassionately. I think it was a thing Extrada did very well. We had one of our senior execs, a guy called Rasmuritis, when we bought MIM, came in and worked with us on integrating that business. And it was a great example. I ended up integrating the exploration team, the technology business. I thought we were going to spin out the technology business, for example. And on the exploration side, we quickly realized for a base metal business, these guys, unbeknownst to the board seemingly, were investing in discovering gold deposits around the world because explorationists could find gold more easily. So there was a complete strategic disconnect, sourcing disconnect. And so once you'd right-sized it for the strategy, you'd committed the right capital and really empowered those guys, You know that set them up. And in the technology case, once we had actually reviewed private equity alternatives and looked at the, and understood what those guys' capabilities were. And these guys had big market share in things like smelter and furnace design mills and things of that nature. We constituted the team with a profit motive. We incentivized them accordingly. They made more money in the first nine months than any spin-out alternative. And the technology just made our business smarter. So my point is that I think businesses like this over time tend to drift. To your point, in good times, it's very hard to get people to focus on difficult choices. But either when you have a, a dislocation like a takeover, or at a time like the financial crisis I mentioned in 08, you know, trying to get people, our first round of budgets just after Lehman's had collapsed, getting people to make tough choices on marginal mines that were losing money. I think, I can't remember, but Extrada's share price had gone from probably 42 pounds a share with a, a sensible capital structure at the time to three or four pounds a share. I mean, you remember the world at that time, it was panic yeah. in the streets. And so you needed to make those tough choices. And the reality is we closed two end-of-life high-cost mines in Sudbury. We mothballed a mine in the Dominican. We then worked with their team to look at a better energy solution so that in a better time they could restart the mine, which is what they ended up doing. And we reprioritized our capital to a new mine called Nicarim South, imposing constraints and putting some of our senior and good talent in there. We actually increased output over that period of time at a fraction of the cost. And so those tough choices wouldn't have probably easily come about with a management team that felt comfortable. And to do that, though, we started, I remember sitting with our CFO, our CEO, Ian Pearson, myself on a weekend, the world's melting down. And we said, okay, let's just review all of this. And we have to, if we're going to ask the operations to make hard choices, we're going to start at the corporate office. And that's what we did. We reduced the corporate office first, 20%. The most senior layer was removed, sent a very clear message to the operations and then we just worked, not through dictating, because I think it's one of the mistakes corporates make in the sector. And that is very often, it's a game theoretic approach to business planning and budgeting. And by that, I mean, incentives end up driving behavior. So guys will put away plans on the assumption at times that corporate offices will cut their numbers in order to get to a certain budget outcome. And the problem with that is you disempower the guys on the ground and make the money. And instead, if you incentivize them appropriately, work with them, 
and use a more of a Socratic data-driven approach, we found, and this is how we help Eric during those difficult times over the five-year plan. It's just patience and working through with the data to help reset the cost structure, optimize that, you know, consider your capital allocation very, very carefully. And what ends up happening at the end of the day is, you know, you've got a, I think, a better outcome. So that's, I think, over a period of nearly 20 years has been a building set of experiences that aren't enjoyable. But at the end of the day, I do think creates empowerment in a new team and a far better outcome for investors and for the business as a whole. Yeah, the difficult times which can build stronger outcomes. I think your point about how companies in good times, they can start to drift. Absolutely. You lose track of the identity of what made you successful. Yes. And I think another point too, when it comes to mining companies, I would imagine the perception of the ivory tower, meaning management who could be in another country who's just dictating down saying, we need this, this, and this can corrode the culture of an organization in so many ways that if you're not careful and have disastrous effects. And so that's something that sounds like that's really got to be kept in mind, especially in the kinds of organizations that are in the mining industry. It's one of the things I loved of having grown through the Extrata model was more of an owner-operator mindset, corporate office, very, very lean, invest the money on the ground, get the talent deployed on the ground, actually use people across the portfolio when you're looking at acquisitions and other things to leverage their talents, but give them experiences in their careers that also sets you up to make better choices and decisions, building bench and organizational capacity and transparency into the bench and the talent that you've got. And it just creates a high level of ownership and it reduces that burden of overhead and exactly the issue that you're referring to. And it's also the symbolism of it. When I first got into Varex CFO, I mean, part of the focus there was you know, there's, do we need all these aircraft, for example? It sends the wrong message. Sometimes operationally you do, but other times not. You know, simple things like when people come in from operations and you're asking them to cut costs everywhere that you can think of and asking them to make those hard choices. And then you've got San Pellegrino sitting on the meeting tables and stuff. It's right. Small, but it sends a message. It sends a huge message. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to think about that. Albeit subjective. Is this fit into your due diligence process now? Are they things that you, I can't imagine you'd sit in a due diligence meeting and say to your team, you know, it all looks good, but I'm a little put off by the Pellegrinos on the table. I can't imagine you'd say that, but how does this fit into your DD? Yeah, look, it goes to culture of the organization and also their approach to everything like ESG and sustainability is a good example. You know, if at the end of the day, they don't have the right stakeholder focus with their workforce, their communities, how they treat the environment... That's just sensible business. You can't if you don't manage that well and host governments look to shut you down or do whatever else, just sort of pick up your mind and go somewhere. So it's just sensible business. It's not political. You've got to make the right long-term decisions if ultimately a business like this and this model is rewarded through time and patience and success. So the team, the culture, the philosophy are a core part of that. And a great example, I mean, we've won opportunities where I'm Deal offering was very close to competitors. Our first at Sarah Lindo, there was one other that was very close in the end. And, you know, after meeting with the senior management team, apparently was one of the determinants was our approach to long-term partnerships and how we conducted that. You know, the Abi Platt transaction we did where we streamed a gold byproduct on this really high quality multi-decade PGM asset in South Africa was focused on them paying down high cost debt with a joint venture with Anglo-American, we'd identified it and we'd identified the opportunity in this space where no one else had actually been 
and done this before. We saw it as a natural symbiosis and an arbitrage on offer. But we started by screening the companies that we felt would be a good match from how they treat their communities and that. And I think if you ever have the opportunity, they're subject to a takeover by implants now and or Northern who are trying to do the same. But you look at how they've built schools, communities. We do scholarship programs with them to support their offerings. These guys truly do more than just pay taxes and create jobs and employment. They really do incredible stuff, which I think is one of the, it's a showcase of what the sector can do. So those things really matter. Yeah, that reminds me of our conversation with Lucas Langdean. And his remark was something to the effect of, we don't own the ore. We're merely contractors in that country helping the government extract that value. And the way he views that and culturally how that goes through is very powerful. And I thought that was a really interesting way he framed that. Look, I don't think any serious mining business has the luxury of being short-termist and not taking good care of your communities. And that, look, you will always potentially have views on, uh, I think the difficulty that the mining sector faces, look at QB2 now, $7.5 billion of investment in order to deliver that. It takes years and years to do that. It's very risky capital up front. And once it's in place, people will look at the profits and that that are being generated and go, whoa, you know, hold on, we want more of that. But the employment that's created, the investment in the country, all that capital is up front. And then it takes significant periods of time usually to be able to recoup that investment. And I think the stakeholder management is part of that and a clear demonstration of what you're providing to those communities, how you treat your workforce, being good custodians of the environmental issues. There's no choice. You have to do that well, because without it, you just won't have the license to do what you think you do best. Fascinating. Yeah. You mentioned ESG and what we have just discussed in ways very much environmental and social and governments too is part of that. But how about to take that further? There's been a lot or there was a lot of heat on ESG stocks and more of a kind of a macro discussion on it. ESG stocks seem to be all the rage. And ironically, the capital from there transitioned out and has gone over to oil and gas. Not entirely, but in some ways it has. If you were to look at ESG from a point of view of uh, just as an investor, what's your take on it and potentially even including criticisms of the state of it in the market right now? You know, it's been an interesting journey for us because as a private company, we started putting those foundations in place. And by the way, all serious mining companies have been doing this long before the moniker of ESG arose, a banner of sustainability or corporate social investment, whatever the case may be. So I think the fact that it's been perhaps politicized now and there's been these clear examples of greenwashing and that, which, you know, rightfully there's, there's been a reaction to that. As I said earlier, for mining to be sensible and sustainable, it's an important part of, of those activities. You have to take care of water, the environment, the workforce, you need to be able to be very thoughtful about that. And if you aren't focusing on things like diversity, there's a fraction of the potential workforce in a sector that needs more talent and skill that is being brought to bear. So these are just sensible business, longer-term business priorities that now have a banner and at times I think are being prioritized. I mentioned earlier, like as a capital allocator, we had to reimagine it. And when we went to our IPO early on, there were banks that were chaperoning us who had their checklists for their ESG departments. And we resisted that. Like we said, yeah, we're not yet at tick boxes. We want to understand as a capital provider and not as an operator, what can we do to do this authentically? So who do you partner with? How do you make sure that you understand your diligence? The technical from tailings dams to you name it. Bad news travels fast. You know, how have they dealt with accidents, activities, environmental spillages, things like that. That's table stakes. Over and above that, and it's not a big expense, but 
we're part of this ecosystem and can we move the overall discussion further down and how we actually think as a sector on things like climate change. And for us, that's meant just transparency and reporting, scope one, two, and we do scope three, which we're the first to do in the sector. It's not a big expense for us. It's less than $10. Can you dive in a little scope one, scope two, scope three? Yeah. So most businesses like this, if they track it at all, they will look at their direct activities. And in an investing activity like this, you know, it's flights you take to conferences or to mine sites, you know, driving to work, the electricity you use to keep the lights on. These are not carbon intensive activities in their own right. But scope three or category 15 emissions, which we then track says, but you're investing in businesses that generate metal that emit carbon. And so let's just see what that is. And as a portfolio, how much carbon does that entail? And what can you do to at least given that that's the primary means, those investing activities, it's the primary means through which you generate returns for your investors. So how can you be a force of good in that? Report it, which we do. And then we actually invest in offsets in order to be able to focus on carbon neutrality. And the next cab off the rank over time will be how do we work with our mining partners to help them improve it. And by the way, some remote sites, like when we were up in the Canadian subarctic in the nickel business with Raglan, all the power up there, it's remote. It's being, these are diesel gen sets at the time was 30 odd cents a kilowatt hour to generate. It's all the fuels brought in on icebreakers. It's a pretty intensive thing. And we put a wind farm up at the time, partly good for the, you know, certainly the environment with the CO2 footprint. But guess what? It's also just economically rational. So I think those opportunities for the mining space needn't be in conflict. And the energy security and the ability to actually improve your footprint, I think we can have kind of a catalytic effect with those across our portfolio sharing good practices over time. That's how we think about it. Yeah, really interesting. The mining industry in itself, it could be a real leader, not a leader, but a, uh, well, they've set a hell of an example because they've had to do great ESG work before it was even popular. I mean, like you say, it was kind of table stakes to being able to, to be within an in a region or in a country, it was highly important. And then the other side, and interesting to hear about your measurement of the carbon footprints of investments and the buying the offsets as well. I mean, that feels like, I don't know if I want to say new age, but it's definitely powerful. I think it's not a topic where you plant a flag and claim victory on. I think it's a journey that you hopefully contribute and you're a force of good on. And you work with others to try and get better at as time moves on. I actually think as a sector, because it's harder to find stuff and obviously the world is going to need more copper and other things to decarburize and build this economy over time. In a world where we're not attracting enough talent, I actually think increasingly the likelihood that we're going to probably find some of the disruption from people outside of the sector and technologies and talent that perhaps comes from outside at a point where the economic imperative is clear and you're going to naturally osmotically attract that, that talent. That's my belief rather than necessarily talent that's pre-existing. It's probably a combination, I think, that you'll see over time that will unlock. No, I'm just looking at time here. I want to be respectful of yours. I have a few more questions though. I am curious about your leader in the pubco space and in streaming and royalties and you're building a, what seems like a great company. I'm curious about who you look up to and who inspires you. And they don't have to be just in the mining sector, but I'm very interested. Wow. Look, we're in a day and age where I think at times in business and certainly listed companies, I've had the benefit of being private until recently. I think it's unfortunate that at times the sector is so quarterly focused. I think the mining sector itself is laboring a little bit under, you know, capital discipline and returning capital to shareholders. And we've 
probably lost a bit of our mojo on being able to build new mines and there's some work there and there's a talent component, which I think is going to probably create a really interesting generational window for investors, I think, in the next while with carbon and other things. I really am excited about this next phase. But why I raise that is the question then is in a world with politicians and a lot of business leaders being quite short-term focused, be it four years or quarter to quarter, I think seeing visionaries and leaders that can transcend that is important. And so a moment of character, things that should be timeless, people that stand up in difficult times. And I think we're seeing some of it in a horrible situation with the Ukraine situation now with Zelensky. You saw in the beginning that individual, I think people giving him a tough time, he won't get there, he's already flown out. And to be quite Chichilian in how he's gone about that, I think has been quite inspiring. That's just as an act of courage and character. So that'd be one thought. I think the other is, look, I know it's controversial, but I've been driving EVs for 10 years now. I like cars, but you know, for use case, I think that's an inevitable way of the future. And I think it's probably going to outperform expectations with consumer adoption. And so Musk would be a good example of that where people are polarized, I think, in terms of his Twitter and all that. But it takes a lot to not just disrupt payment systems, but to, if you've ever read Space Barons or anything like that, you know, the idea that you would break in and completely blow apart monopolies that were previously controlled by governments with space, you know, space launches is yeah. incredible. Yeah, it is. It truly is. I think it's amazing. And of course, you know, GM made electric cars and could have been Tesla. But, you know, I think the OEMs would not naturally have taken a hatchet to their own business model unless they had someone come in and do what Musk did with Tesla. So I think people that have both the courage of putting their own money in place and the courage of their convictions in that effort is, is actually really inspiring. And I think the world needs sort of more of that. And you know, you can criticize Elon Musk all you want, but I'm, you know, I'm part of the fanboy club as well. I mean, what he's been able to do is absolutely remarkable. I mean, how many people have been able to disrupt so many industries like space travel, which was effectively a government monopoly. Just NASA was the only option. And bam, SpaceX. Or yeah, the electric car industry and on and on. I mean, it is very interesting. You go back to that moment, which they describe in his biography, where Tesla hasn't shipped the car. They're piling up, you know, these things that aren't shipping. You've got Clooney and others seemingly wanting them and the roadster hasn't gone. And your first few rockets have blown up and you've got enough money of your fortune from PayPal to do one or the other, and you decide to roll the dice and do both. And then, then the next rocket goes and the cars finally ship. Those were improbable stories. And we talk about hindsight, but man, that takes guts. Everyone with hindsight, like, you know, looks at it as if it was easy, but that's the stuff I'm talking about is the ability of people to dare to do great things, even if they know the odds are against them. And that's not a quarterly focus, unfortunately. And it's certainly not a four year focus. I think we need, I don't know what's happened to leadership in many ways. I think the world needs a lot better leadership. So. Yeah, it, it's been a bit of a tragic. We're, we're seeing a bit of a dearth, not a bit, a huge dearth in, in solid leadership. But I think Zelensky is a great example. I hope more people take time to recognize that kind of who he is. Yeah, for sticking it out. I mean, what a situation. In you mentioned space barons and books, and that brings me to my next question. What do you read? What do you enjoy? Whew. There's actually a few that I'm going through at the moment. One is there's a book that's come out recently called 4,000 Weeks. It's more business oriented, but it's a simple thesis. And that is, you know, the time management gurus, the reality is you become more efficient at processing your inbox and all that. Guess what? There's always more and you just need to accept that. And the idea is you've only got an average 4,000 weeks in your lifetime. What are the things that you want to choose to do that really matter? 
So I'm, I'm in the midst of that right now. I love biographies. I talk about Musk, Warren Buffett's uh, Sting. I mean, you know, there's a lot of interesting different ones out there and just seeing people's journeys because it was sort of fascinating. There's the, I'm trying to think of it at the moment because I'm actually in the midst of it. It's the story with the wolf for sale, which I obviously know a lot of the characters from my Extrada and uh, the Glenn relationship time. So I think that's kind of a fascinating thing that I'm in the I midst of right put now. That on my list. I've heard about that a couple of times and yeah. Yeah. yeah and imagine, it's, you, know, um, you know the name. Uh, the individuals pretty well. So uh, yeah, I'm in the midst of that. And there's another one that I've been going through called, uh, this is how they tell me the world ends, which I think was the financial times book of the year last year, which is really more around cybercrime. And I mean, we're all dealing with it, right? So, I mean, there's not a, seemingly a day goes by, you haven't got like an email phishing scam coming in or whatever. But I think just looking at that and interestingly, before the Ukraine conflict, I mean, this actually starts a lot of the book is focused on some of the cyber attacks in Ukraine as a precursor and the influence in our sort of hyper-connected world that it's having on our society and on our businesses and our lives. So anyway, those are kind of a few. Yeah. Wow. No, they all sound very interesting. I'm going to take a few notes on those. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. I just want to aim to wrap up. Any final thoughts for our audience and, and feel free to share thoughts about Triple Flag and the work you're doing there. But from our conversation, which has been meandering, if there's any final thoughts you'd like to share, please do. Okay. Thanks for the time. It has been kind of very varied. And uh, final thoughts would be, I think nobody could have forecast two and a half years ago that we would be experiencing all these sort of crazy things from pandemics to you know war to everything that we're dealing with and you know hyperinflation. I've not experienced this in my lifetime, for example, necessarily. So I think on the one hand, it's creating a lot of volatility, uncertainty, but I also think it's setting the table for some really interesting opportunity in the years to come and in the resources space specifically. So, you know, for me, and that was part of the beauty of something like Triple Flag is I think the contribution we can make is really with the right mining partners that need know-how and capital. I think the world is inevitably going towards decarburization, electrification. And if you believe in that thesis, they're going to need smart capital and, you know, patient capital. And that's really what we're providing. So, I do see it as sort of a generational opportunity and it's been a fun ride so far, but I actually think the best is yet to come. So yeah, that's us. That's awesome, man. You know what I like about doing these interviews and video and I wish we were sitting face to face is I can see the passion in you. I can see that you're glowing, you're inspired by this. And that's, I think, a sign of great leadership. So Sean, this has been awesome. Great to meet you. Likewise. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.